Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of DWMOD, that's Disagree With Me or Don't. As usual, I'm your host, Mikey Wilson, and bringing you a episode that's uh, it's kind of special to me. I'm putting a lot of research into it and doing some deep digging. We're going to dive deep into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The whole process, uh, you know, as to the, the Baseball Writers uh, Association and how they do their voting and, quite frankly, how they're, they're completely hypocritical and how they see themselves as some kind of guards or protectors of the sanctity of the hall um but really they're just hypocritical man uh we threw it out to all the listeners out there throw us some names throw us some people that you think should be in the hall so we could look into it do some research on it and we got some good good feedback got some good names and i promised everybody that sent in stuff i was gonna at least address the player you sent in whether it be quickly or or it be long because they're deserving we're gonna get into that you know thank you to all the opinionites for chiming in and really what better day to be having this conversation than on the birthday of Sweet Lou Whitaker, my favorite player growing up, and a guy who absolutely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and we're going to dig into that one specifically. But before we get into that, I'd like to dig into this uh, Last Dance docuseries that's been on uh, ESPN lately. Everybody's watching it. Everybody's into it. Everybody loves Jordan. You know what I mean? Like, everybody loves Mike. Everybody remembers, uh, you know, especially if you're in my age group, you remember being a kid when that was happening. And, you know, especially being a kid from Detroit, uh, you know, it tugged at you because you hated them. You hated the Bulls, the Celtics, the Lakers. You hated them all. You loved the bad boys. And then, you know, Mike just exploded. And if you were a kid, you enjoyed watching him. You liked him. You were in the backyard pretending to be like Mike for a minute or two. And then you came to your senses and remembered, the bad boys were the team. So that's kind of what I want to get into. Um, really enjoyed the episodes that included the bad boys early in this thing. And I do believe they're going to be the most talked about. And so far they have been the most talked about episodes. I love to see these guys get their credit in this whole timeline from great to greatness. I love to see these guys get the credit they deserve in that. And you're probably saying, what credit? I mean, they were totally dogging on the bad boys, discrediting them. They were. They were dogging on the bad boys hard in this documentary. But to me, I don't see it that way. I see it that uh, they're finally getting the love they deserve. A, a lot of the stuff early on just showing how, how much of thugs they were and all the footage and clips they were showing of, of Lambeer and Mahorn and the guys going after people and the thuggery in the lane when guys would try to come to the hoop. And that's just not I, – I, it's totally not fair because you could take – that's the way basketball was at that time. If you ask anybody, included in some of these interviews – They'll tell you during that era of basketball, if you wanted to come to the to the hoop with blatant disregard for your own body, well, then you took that upon yourself. That's the way the game was played back then. All right. Now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong or it's changed for the better. I'm not making any of those arguments right now. I'm saying it is what it was. So to look at that stuff through the lens of today's eyes of basketball, like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's shocking to see what the game the way it is now. I mean, the way the game is now, you know, guys like James Harden get to take 15 euro steps on the way to the hoop and you got to get out of the way or he's shooting free throws at the end of it. That's the way the game is now. You know, again, I'm not arguing which is better. I'm not getting into that. I'm saying the way that it was is what they were showing. And you could find clips of any teams at that time, especially in the East, any teams at that time and put together a film reel of thuggery in the lane. So it's a bit misleading to show that the Pistons were the only ones doing that. That's not the fact. The game was being played that way. We were just better at it. It was also funny to me 
the way they demonized the Pistons strategy of, of stopping Jordan before he took flight. That was a great game plan. And, and they, they put it out there as if it was like some kind of cheap trick, like, like it was grab his jersey and hold him all game long or something. That's not what it was. I mean, it, it was a great strategy. Let's stop him before he gets going. This guy likes to get going in the lane, get airborne, and get by everybody to the hoop. So we need to stop him before he does that as a good game plan. And they demonized it as if it was some kind of uh, cheap thuggery. You know what I mean? What's the alternative there? What's their alternative? Well, we can't do that, guys. People think we're not very nice if we just don't let him go easily to the hoop. I mean... Just think about the alternative to what they're trying to spin there. The alternative is to let him. Okay, so we were like, we got to stop this guy before he gets going. Uh, it was just a good strategy. It was a good way to attack the guy, and it worked. And they demonized it. And again, to me, that's looking at the past through the lens of today. It's a different NBA now, okay? It's a different NBA now, clearly. So to look at it through today's lens, yeah, you can't even fathom that put a body on somebody before he gets to come to the hoop. But that's the way the game was played back then by everybody and especially in the East. So there shouldn't be any crying about it. You know, they should have just been discussing it as if, hey, this is the way basketball was back then and here's how we tried to adjust or here's what we did to capitalize on the way the game was played at the time. Not look at it through today's lens and be like, oh, look at the goons and thuggery. That's how it was played, man. You, you can't do that. It's not fair to history to look at it through the lens of today. You have to put yourself in the situation as to what it was like at the time to understand the mindset. It's the only fair way to do it. And quite frankly, we're not doing that. And whatever, because the Pistons owned it. Uh, bad boy moniker was slapped on them by the media. Media put it on them. And they owned it. They decided, you know, if this is what they're going to paint us as in the media, we're not going to be able to escape it. It is what it is. This is what they're going to call us. This is what they're going to make us out to be. And we can cry about it and try to change it and whine that it's not fair. Or we can walk into the arena and be like, yeah, we're here. We're the bad boys. This is what you want. This is what you're going to get. And we'll take the championships. And three of them in a row, I might add, because nobody fouled Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Nobody fouled Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. All right, James Worthy even said so in the documentary, the 30 for 30 on the bad boys. They put him on the spot and asked him, was Kareem fouled? And he said, long silence. The ref called the foul. Yeah, they know it. Nobody was fouled. So that's a three-peat for the Pistons in my book. And like I said, it's great to see these guys finally start getting the credit they deserve instead of just being painted as these bad guys. The NBA needed them at the time. Okay, they needed them. This is showmanship at its oldest levels of, of baby faces and heels. You know, if you're going to have the good guy... Old cowboy movies, anything you want to think of that's an entertainment. If you're going to have the good guy wearing the white hat that everybody loves, that does everything good, and he's the angel to everything, you have to have the guy in the black hat or you have no story. You have to have the bad guys or you have no story. So at this time when basketball's in its golden age, it's the greatest it's been, you're looking at, you, you got your Magic Johnsons. Everybody loves Magic and the Lakers. Good guy. You got Larry and the Celtics. They come from the East, but everybody loved them. They played physical too. Boy, did they play like the Pistons. They sure did. You knew you were in for a physical battle when you played them, but they weren't painted that way in the media, were they? You had Larry. He was a golden boy. Everybody loved the Celtics. You got another good guy. You got Jordan. He's upcoming with the Bulls. He's the heir apparent. He's special. He's the greatest player that's ever played, and they saw it early. There's no denying that. He is, and he was. But again, you got another good guy. 
You can't have all these good guys fighting. You gotta have a bad guy. And that's exactly what the media did. They put the black hat on the Pistons and it backfired on them. And then they really didn't like it, so they doubled down because it backfired on them because the bad guy's not supposed to win. The cowboy in the white hat's not supposed to get shot. The heel's not supposed to pin the baby face at the end of the match. And the Pistons were regularly beating their baby faces. They're good guys. They were regularly beating them. They backfired on them, and they didn't like that. It went against all the NBA's plans, and now you had the team winning the championship regularly who everybody outside of Detroit hates. This isn't good for the game. Well, you started it. You put the bad hat on them. They just owned it, and now you want to ridicule them for it. And I love to see them getting the credit they deserve for boosting everything to the level of it that, that it was boosted to at that time for what they did at that time. And, and the best part about it is they love it. They still revel in it, and we still revel in it. We sit there and watch that, and we're not disappointed. We love it. We're like, yeah, hate on us. Do all the hating you want. These guys owned it then, and they own it now. Bill Lambeer went on ESPN the next day and said, I wouldn't change a thing. Wouldn't change a thing. I love it. So if you think that they feel regret or remorse about it now, I mean, you're being silly. You're being silly. The more that it's celebrated for everybody else to have to overcome them, the more they love it because you didn't and they won. You know, that's the bottom line is, is like we just discussed. The media and the NBA and everybody makes them the bad guys. And, and this all culminates at a moment when they walk off and don't shake hands. That's what's been made the biggest deal here. They walk off and they don't shake hands when the Bulls finally beat them. Now, you demonized them. You made them the bad boys. You made them the devils of basketball. You made everybody hate them. You turned them into the bad guys. And then when they lose and walk off the court without shaking hands, you're appalled? You're appalled. You're appalled that the guys who proclaim the, the train robbers and the bad guys robbed the train? I mean, you're appalled by that? How are you appalled by that behavior? You put it on them. You gave them the moniker, you know. Nobody's appalled when, when the heel gets knocked out of the ring at the end of the match and he runs over and grabs the bell and gets in the ring and, and knocks it off the baby face's melon. Nobody gets offended by that, you know. You created that. That's the situation. So why are you appalled when they walk off? Not to mention, I'm glad to see in this documentary it was finally addressed that, again, you can't look at acts like that through today's eyes when the game's over and everybody's hugging and they're all best friends because it's just a money business. These guys were competitive back then. These, these guys cared about winning and losing a lot more and took it a lot more personally. They didn't just go home and say, well, I'm still rich, I don't care. Not that a lot of guys do that. They're competitive guys today. Don't get off track here. But I'm just saying, it was different back then. So I'm glad that they finally showed that that's exactly what the Celtics did to us and we finally got over them. Now, I'm not using that as an excuse. I've heard all the opinionites out there coming at me. Oh, oh, okay, so that makes it okay? That makes it right? Nobody said it made it okay. Nobody said it made it right. But it is what it was. That's what it was at that time. It had been done to them, and they turned around and did the same thing. So, no, maybe it doesn't make it right, but it absolutely makes it fair to bring up. It makes it fair to talk about. You know, everybody acts as if that is something that had never been done and that there was a giant gasp across sportsmanship when they did that and walked off like it couldn't be believed. And I'm like, this is not the first time anybody's ever done this. But I'll tell you what you didn't see then. You haven't seen since. And you still won't see 30 some years later. Isaiah bitching and crying about it. Well, the Celtics, there's no class and they didn't shake hands. And Larry Bird's an asshole. And Larry Bird acted like an asshole. You didn't see Isaiah doing all that crying about it, did you? 
Isaiah Thomas didn't need the Celtics to bend the knee to him. He beat them. They lost. They were upset. They didn't shake hands. They walked off without shaking hands, and Isaiah moved on. Now, let's mention what wasn't discussed in that documentary that I was very glad to see Terry Foster write an article about it the next day because he covered the Pistons at the time in Detroit, and he wrote an article uh, pointing out that the documentary didn't show that Jordan sat in the seats, you know, they call them the end zone seats, but it's basketball, in the end zone seats right under the hoop the day before the game, doing an interview for the press. The whole world's listening to Jordan at the time, and he sat there at the Palace in Detroit and proceeded to dog on the city, rag on the Pistons, call them terrible champions, totally dismissed any credibility that they had as champions. I mean, the guy sat there and dogged on the city of Detroit, dogged on the Pistons, dogged on players individually, like blatantly. They're bad champs. They're bad for basketball. These are quotes that he was giving at that time. So he, in the press, lambastes them. And then when he wins, I mean, everybody's shocked that they don't go over and shake hands with him and congratulate him? No, don't pop off at the mouth like that and then expect to have your hands shook. I'm sorry, but there's some legitimacy to that. I mean, there's some genuine legitimacy to that. Which brings us to the big, big, big issue here. How much hatred Michael Jordan still has for Isaiah Thomas. How much hatred he still has for that Pistons team. And they try to hang it all on that moment when they walked off the court and didn't shake hands. And I'm going to say that they're right, but not for the reasons that you think, okay? They're right because Jordan never had to deal with that, ever. They've said throughout this documentary that this guy has a major competitive problem. He said it himself. I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem. All his teammates, everybody they talked to, every one of them said, yeah, the guy has a competition problem. I mean, they all said it. If you beat him at something, you weren't allowed to leave until he beat you. You weren't allowed to stop doing anything until he beat you. He wouldn't stop until he beat you. And when he did, he wouldn't let it die. He would rub it in and let you know for the next week that he was walking around with your $20 in his pocket. That's what they said. He wouldn't stop until he won. And when he did, he wouldn't let you forget it. And you saw it with a lot of the interviews that he was doing. That he was like that. He was going to talk shit to you when he beat you. He was going to let you know he was the best. He was absolutely going to be that way. So I'm going to say they're right. That's why he hates Isaiah Thomas and them so much. Not because they didn't shake hands, but because all the shit that was talked and the competitiveness between these two over four years. You're talking the 1988 semifinals of the Eastern Conference, the 89 Conference Finals, the 90 Conference Finals, and leading up to the 91 Conference Finals. All the shit talk between these two, all the competitive who's going to beat who, and we already know Jordan can't take that kind of stuff. He can't take it, and to his own admission, that's what drove him and drove him to beat the damn Pistons, and that's why he hates Isaiah Thomas, because when he finally did beat the Pistons, Isaiah didn't walk over and shake his hand and let him talk shit about having his $20 in his pocket. Isaiah walked off the court, didn't bend the knee to Mike, didn't give him his moment to gloat and make sure that you knew he beat you. He walked off and said, eh, whatever, you got me once. I got you three times. And to this day, Jordan can't live with that. That's why he hates Isaiah Thomas so much. He's the only one that ever got the best of him. He's the only one that ever got the best of him. He never got his much-needed closure for losing to Isaiah so many times. And and it's clear. Yeah, you can come at me and say, well, they swept them and blew them out in 91. So that's closure. Is it? Is it? Because 
And that's not really accurate either. Because in the 88 semis, we beat the Bulls on an average of 14.5 points a game. Average 14.5 points a game for a margin of victory. In the 89 finals, we won on 8.5 points a game margin of victory. That's a pretty close series. In 1990, when it went seven games, we won on an average of 13 points a game. 13 points a game. In a seven-game series, our, our margin of victory was 13 points a game. So now we go into the 91 finals, Eastern Conference finals, and you know how it's always told to us, like they blew the Pistons out and swept them. Yeah, they swept us. Average margin of victory, 11 points. Couldn't even match when we beat them. So it's looked at as they blew us out and got past us. Average margin of victory, 11 points. So Isaiah was beating him a lot worse than he beat Isaiah the one time he did. And that leads me to another point that isn't touched on in the documentary at all. And that's all the rule changes that were put into effect so that the NBA could promote Michael the way that they did. Not Again, I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. The guy is the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Okay, He's phenomenal. He's the greatest. Not denying any of that. But facts are facts. A lot of rules were changed. Okay, the Jordan rules wasn't something that people talked about because it was a fairy tale. It was real. I mean, you saw in the documentary, uh, Magic was even busting his balls about it at that USA photo shoot when he says, oh, man, nobody's gotten this close to Mike in the last five years. Don't touch him, Larry. It's going to be a foul. They were busting his balls about it then because that was that's what it was. But this documentary portrayed the situation as the culmination of Jordan's determination and deciding to get on the weights and start weightlifting and getting the rest of the team weightlifting so that they could physically battle the Pistons, coupled with Phil Jackson's genius triangle offense that was the difference and finally got them over the hump and got them to beat the Pistons. When a lot more of the truth lies in the Jordan rules. And if you want to roll your eyes, let me just break down some numbers for you that I got here. This is the breakdown of the free throws in the Eastern Conference Finals in 1991, okay? Pistons, Bulls, and specifically broken down Jordan to Isaiah. The Bulls go to the line 37 times, score 27 points from the line. Jordan has 22 points in Game 1, 13 of those from the stripe. The Pistons go to the line 15 times. 13 points from the stripe, and six points for Isaiah Thomas from the line, okay? In game two, the Bulls go to the line 45 times, score 34 points from the line. Jordan has 35 in the game, 14 of those from the charity stripe. Pistons go to the line 25 times for 20 points, two points for Isaiah from the stripe. Now, you want to tell me that this isn't a big change? Right here, that's not a big difference right there. Because then let me bring up game three. In game three, where this is kind of brought to everybody's attention in the media, the disparity between the foul calls here, we finally have a game that's called a lot closer. Okay, this game is called a lot closer, and there's only a three-point difference down the stretch coming into the end of the ball game here. So now we've got a tight game because it's being called fair. Bulls go to the line 35 times and score 28 points. The Pistons go to the line 36 times and score 26 points. That's even. That's straight across. Jordan has 33 in the game, 12 from the stripe. Isaiah gets 11 from the stripe. Okay, now we're officiating the game evenly, and we've got a game that's a three-point game as it's coming to an end. Then we go to game four. Game four, we're right back to our old antics. The Bulls go to the line 43 times for 29 points. 
Jordan has 29 in the game. Nine of his come from the stripe. He missed a quite a few free throws in this one. The Pistons go to the line 27 times for 22 points. Isaiah gets six from the stripe on this one. Now, you may think that's not that big a difference. Really look at the numbers. Okay, so they're shooting twice as many free throws in most of the games. That's a big deal. But if you can't see it by the numbers I just gave you, let me just give you the totals. Okay, over four games, the Bulls will shoot 160 free throws for 118 points. Okay, the Pistons will go to the line only 100 times. All right. Now, mind you, the Bulls only shot roughly 70% from the line. Okay, 118 points, only shooting 70% from the line. That gives them 30 points a game. They're getting 30 points a game from the stripe and you want to tell me there wasn't a difference in officiating here you want to tell me that this had nothing to do with the jordan rules or basketball making rule changes to benefit michael jordan come on the evidence is there now i'm not saying the bulls might not have won that series anyway that year pistons were getting old like i said we just came off of three straight championships asterisks two straight championships but we're tired man they even showed in the documentary that at the end of Jordan's three-peat, how tired and worn out he was. So the Pistons are at the end of their three-peat, and they're tired and worn out just like Jordan was. So, yeah, they might they might have won that series anyway. They probably would have. I'll concede that. They probably would have won that had you called it fair and straight the whole way. But I'm just pointing out a fact. You know, they glorify the triangle offense combined with Jordan and everybody lifting weights to be able to finally battle physically against the Pistons and all that. They don't mention this. They don't mention this at all. So I think it's fair to bring up. I also uh, want to bring up the Team USA thing before we get out of here on the on the Jordan documentary. I, I think it all but got settled that it was mike's call that isaiah was not going to play on that team now he didn't admit it in the documentary so you can sit there and play that game with me he never admitted it no one else did either you can play that game but we all know before chuck daly died that he had made some statements that mike said yeah you can go ahead and have zeke on the team if you want but i won't be i mean chuck daly said that that was pretty much the case okay and you can see how uncomfortable jordan gets in that chair when they put him on the spot with that question and he says, I mean, I asked who's all going to be on the team. That's the first thing he had to say when they, they approached him about Team USA. And he gets real uncomfortable. And then they say, well, what did that mean? Did it mean Isaiah? He said, I, 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 I never mentioned Isaiah's name, but I, I just said who, who's going to be on the team. And then he went further in explaining, would it have been a good dynamic with everybody if Isaiah wasn't on the team? And like probably all the things he pitched to them about not having him on the team and then it came down to me or Zeke. So let's just be honest, okay? He's the reason that Isaiah Thomas was not on Team USA. And Isaiah deserved to be on Team USA. There's no question about that. He was more than deserving. You took the best players of that time, of that decade, of that era, of basketball, basically. And he's in that conversation. Hands down. He's the only one that beat Mike. Quite a bit. I'm not going to get into Isaiah's resume because you don't need it, but... He's the only guy to have to beat Larry and Mike and Magic to win titles, okay? And he did it, and, and, and he did it multiple times. He's also the only player in NBA history to average more than 20 points and 13 assists in a season. 
the only player ever to do that. This guy is one of the greats of all time. And to be left off that team was a travesty. And we all know where it came from now. And there's just one other little thing I'd like to put to bed because it always sparks the debate of if he were to be on the team, who are you going to take off the team? That's always the stupid debate that we have to have. And then people always want to come to it with, well, there's two centers and there, and then there's a couple power forwards and you got to have the two shooting guards. So you got to look at it like that. And there was two point guards on the team, Magic Johnson and John Stockton. So, I mean, which one of them do you remove to have Isaiah on the team? That's the dumbest logic I've ever heard, that one of the point guards would have to be removed from the team for Isaiah to have a spot on that team. It's one of the dumbest arguments I've ever heard. That, that team was not going into international play with the concept of being able to run an offense and move the ball around, and am I going to have enough bench play off a backup point guard? They were going to blow everybody's doors off with the best players in the world, and they were basically going to go out there and play street ball while they did it. It didn't matter about positions. Okay, so this whole argument of Isaiah versus Stockton, because it wasn't going to be magic, the whole idea that there wasn't room for Isaiah and Stockton on this team is ridiculous. They both should have been on that team. Mind you, Stockton's banged up at the time and can't even practice, as they've said in the documentary. He's hurt they put him on the team over Isaiah. But anyway, Stockton's great. He deserved it. There's room for both those guys on the team. And then you get the idiot argument of, well, then it should have been Christian Leitner. He should have been out. No, Christian Leitner shouldn't have been out. Christian Leitner deserved to be on that team. The whole part of moving it over to the pros was they were going to include a college player. They were going to reward the best college player with a spot on Team USA. And at the time, that was Christian Leitner. And that's not even arguable. At the time, his resume, his college runs, his championships, his Players of the Year awards, his, that guy deserved his shot on that team because they were going to give one college guy a spot. It's Christian Leitner's. He deserved it. You want to make a decision of who should be off the team, you take your pick between Clyde Drexler and Chris Mullen because Isaiah deserved it more than those two guys. And if you really want me to get down to my pick, you keep Chris Mullen. He can play a little bit of forward, I guess, against my own logic of that you needed it. But anyway, Clyde Drexler can go. You got enough guards on the damn team. Isaiah deserved it over Clyde. That's easy. So stop with the Stockton and the Leitner and who he should be in or out. It doesn't matter. He should have been on the team. And if you want to put a gun to my head, who should have been out, get rid of Clyde Drexler. That's that. So everybody, you know, quit referring to Isaiah Thomas as being a baby about being on Team USA. He, I've never heard this guy publicly cry about it once, even now when they're asking him about it after this documentary. He's saying, well, I had the resume, and that's unfortunate. And he's known for years it was because of Mike. And he don't even say that on TV. The guy's a class act. They ask him about it, and he simply has a response of, well, you know, if, if I were to find that out, that that were true, I would be highly disappointed about that. But, you know... I had the resume, and I felt as if I should have been on the team. What a class act, man. He's not even going to say anything about it. Jordan's still crying about it, calling him an asshole, mad. They handed him that iPad. You saw how mad Jordan got. He hates the guy to this day. So because he didn't shake your hand when you finally beat him, you had him removed, excluded, not removed, excluded from Team USA. You've bashed him for years. You still hate him. You get on TV 30-something years later and call him an asshole. Guys, who's the baby here? Who's the baby here? Okay. You can disagree with me or don't on that, but who's the baby here? I think it's Jordan, but I will give Jordan one more compliment before I'm done on this Bulls Pistons thing. Okay. I will give him the compliment that I've never seen somebody so competitive that could be so hate driven against those that beat him and stuff. We all know people like that, 
I've never seen somebody so competitive and then at the same time have the wherewithal to give credit where credit's due. And he says, I wouldn't have been the player that I became had it not been for the bad boy Pistons. They really pushed me and challenged me mentally, forced me to physically get stronger, to get better. If it weren't for them, I wouldn't have been who I was. And I give them credit for that. That's not an easy thing to say, especially about someone you hate. How many people you know can give compliments of that level about people they hate? So I got to give Jordan credit for that. I got to give him credit for that. And he's the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Okay? I mean, I hate the Bulls, I hate the Lakers, and I hate the Celtics. I'll always be a bad boy at heart. But I can be objective. That guy's the greatest. That guy's the greatest, and he was going to beat us eventually. So quit being a baby, Mike. All right? And now we got to take a break to pay a few bills around here, and let's give some credit where credit is due to the most delicious beer that there is. That's Old English 800. Uh, Still trying to get them on board to be official sponsor of the show, but we're always having brass monkeys while we're recording. Old English 800 is the drink of choice for DWMOD. It's the quality blue-collar alternative to a mimosa. Go out and get some Old English 800 for your next brunch. Mix it with a little OJ. See where you land. It's all the flavor sands the heartburn. So come on, OE, jump on board. Make it official. The beer of DWMOD. So on to the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's the reason we're here. Been putting this together for a long time. And I can't think of any better way to to jump into this thing than paying a, a quick tribute to Mr. Tiger. We just lost recently. Al Kaline. And before we get into paying him his homage that's due for all of his achievements on the baseball diamond, I just wanted to give him his homage as a human being. Um, those of you that know my wife, Chloe, know that she used to work for the Tigers and she used to work directly with Mr. K-Line and Mr. Illich. And those are two guys that she would constantly say are the real genuine article. Uh, the nicest guys that she knew always went out of their way to come over and say hi to her and ask her how she's been and how's things going and just always super nice to go over and talk to her and, and to make a point of it. Stop what they were doing, other conversations, go and talk to her and, and you know, that's just the type of guys that they were because she would take care of them over there. Just a really great dude on a personal level, on a human being level. It was a big loss for baseball, huge loss for Tiger fans everywhere. The guy really was Mr. Tiger. He signed with the Detroit Tigers the day after he graduated high school, headed out to join the team, and he made his debut a week later. Never played one second in the minor leagues. Guy won the AL batting title before he was even old enough to vote which at the time was 21, but he was 20 and one day years old, which was uh, one day younger than Ty Cobb when Ty Cobb won his first batting title. But that's pretty impressive. Never played a minute in the minor leagues, and he's winning the batting title quickly within the next season he's playing. You know where he stands all time with Hall of Famers? 58th all time in home runs with 399. 44th all time among RBIs, 1,582 of them. Uh, 18 all-star games in 21 seasons and he's part of the 3000 hits club so this guy's a legitimate hall of famer uh the epitome of baseball also a member of the the great 68 world series team as everybody knows the tigers were down to the cardinals 3-1 and came back and won the world series you know he easily could have been the mvp of that series had it not been for mickey lolich I mean, in the series, Al Kaline hit 379 with two home runs, two doubles, eight RBIs, scored six runs. I mean, the guy easily could have been the MVP. Uh, for again, if it weren't for Mickey Lolich, you know, uh, Tigers down 3-1. They go into Game Five. Mickey Lolich pitches on two days rest, gets the win. 
than Denny McLean, who was the league leader that year. I think he had 31 wins. I don't think we'll ever see 30 wins again with the way baseball is played anymore. But McLean goes game six on two days rest. He wins. And then Lolich comes back to pitch game seven again on two days rest, and he wins. Which brings me to, well, we'll get back to that in a second. Lolich was the MVP of the series and clearly should have been. He won three games of the four that we needed. He only gave up five runs. He threw three complete game victories and went 14 innings without giving up a run at one point. He dominated the Cardinals during that series and deserved to be the MVP. Uh, We'll double back on Lolich in a second because he was one of the names we got from a few of our, our older listeners that are a big fan of that era of baseball as a guy that should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, just want to point out one more fact about, about K-Line that kind of segues us into where we're going with these, uh, the baseball writers and the votes and, and how they pick things. L. K-Line, uh, he finished second for MVP twice, once in 1955 and once in 1963. Okay, in 1955, Yogi Berra wins the MVP from the Yankees. And, and the, I mean, you can look this up with the Hall of Fame, clear bias. I mean, if you were a Yankee or a St. Louis Cardinal, your chances of being in a Hall of Fame are that 10 times that of anybody that played anywhere else. It, it just is that way. Uh, but anyway, in, in 55, K-Line finishes second to Yogi Berra in the MVP voting, and they both had 27 home runs. Al had 102 RBIs. Berra had 108. But Yogi Berra hit 272, and Al K-Line hit 340 that year. So K-Line's line is 340 with 27 homers and 102 RBIs. Yogi Berra's line is 272 with 27 homers and 108 RBIs. Now you tell me which guy had the better season then. And keep in mind, this is well before uh, playoff runs and and multiple playoff series that get a, a guy a chance to get hot and then World Series performance. I mean, this award was given out then before that stuff went down. So this is based on the regular season. And may I also make one more argument here that we all know what the 55 uh, Yankees lineup looks like. So it's fair to say Yogi Berra is not the guy they're pitching around. He's seeing a lot of pitches because they're pitching around the rest of that lineup. And and he only hits 272. Now the 55 Tigers, it's a decent team. They're pretty good. But K-Line is a guy they're pitching around. I mean, he's not seeing a ton of pitches, and he hits 340 and matches him in homers and RBIs. So, again, there's that bias, that, that Yankee bias, that East Coast Yankee bias that the writers are going to be, well, give it to the Yankee, Yogi Bear. Oh, he's the greatest. Yogi Bear's a great player. Phenomenal. Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. K-Line had a better season in 55. And the same thing happens to him in 63 when he finishes second. And if I'm going to give you a few seconds and just give you the numbers. I won't even tell you the guy that won the MVP and see if you can think of it before I even say it. I will bet you $100 you can't, okay? But in the 63 season, the gentleman who wins the MVP also played from a team uh, in New York that had moved to L.A., so still loved by the media. The guy who wins the award hits 287 with 28 home runs and 85 RBIs. K-Line hits 314 with 27 home runs and 101 RBIs. I mean, he's better in every category. And the other guy takes the MVP. And if you didn't think of the name by now, let me refresh your memory. That great, great player, Elston Howard. I mean, you see how this goes? And 63, the Tigers were a good ball club. So it's not like they're the bottom of the league and so you can't give the award to K-Line. They're a good ball club. I mean, they're knocking on the door of turning this thing around. In a few years, they're going to be World Series champs. So... This is where I'm going to have a long discussion about the baseball writers and their bias and their hypocrisies and their favoritism. And then they act like they're these 
keepers uh, of the holy grail of awards, the protectors of the hall that, you know, they keep this integrity of the hall intact by making sure there's a stiff line of who gets in and who doesn't. And it's constantly blurred and jumped back and forth across by themselves, you know, which which brings us into Mickey Lolich. Now, you can go either way on that. I won't spend a ton of time on Mickey Lolich, but I gave you what he did in the World Series, what the guy did. He was a dominating pitcher during during his time in Major League Baseball. Uh, this is a guy who finished his career with 220 wins. Okay, his lifetime ERA was 3.4, and that's counting his last season when he probably shouldn't have been pitching anymore, and he threw well over a, a five-point ERA. But his lifetime ERA is 3.4, 220 wins. The guy did see some active military duty during the riots. He was in the National Guard and got called up to go and work during the riots. So, I mean, I don't know what that counts you for, but you always hear that kind of stuff about Ted Williams and these guys that left for the war, which they did a lot more. I'm just saying. Interesting little fact there. But this guy's 20th all-time on the Major League strikeout list. And his postseason resume, I mean, that's one of the greatest postseason runs uh, of a starting pitcher that you can name i mean you can name individual feats like larson's perfect game or doc holiday's no hitter you can name all those things but i'm talking about a guy who did like a a, a bum gardener did up in san francisco a few years back like just dominated the damn series you know and won multiple games in the series there's only a couple of guys you can say that about we're going to talk about another one later jack morris but you know Lolich did that so do I think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer? No. Do I think this is a guy that probably should have got some consideration on a on a veterans committee or something? Yeah, I do. But, you know, I'm not going to throw shade on everybody for not being able to be unbiased and, and cast an honest opinion and put your favorite teams and players aside to be honest about everything, be objective. I can't do that and not be objective here or I'm a hypocrite myself. And I would say he's a bubble guy. If he didn't get in, I can understand that. And if he did get in, I would understand that. One other guy we'll touch on quickly from that 68 championship team for the Tigers. Um, that Because I got some feedback. People think this guy ought to have a shot at the Hall of Fame or should have had a shot at the Hall of Fame was all-star catcher Bill Freehan. Um, now, this is a guy where I'm going to disagree with everybody. He's just not a Hall of Famer. You know, I think this is where the Homer thing comes in and everybody loves him because he was a longtime Tiger and he was great and he was a great part of that, you know, 68 World Series. Uh, you know, he blocks the plate when Brock's trying to come in to score. That's a famous picture. You can Google it. It'll be the first thing that comes up. You know, it's a great shot. But, you know, here's the bottom line. Freehand played 15 years. His lifetime batting average, he hit 262. He had 200 home runs, 758 RBIs. And 1,591 hits. Now, he was a gold glover five times and played in 11 All-Star games. MVP runner-up once. But the bottom line is that's just not numbers, especially considering this year the Veterans Committee put in a catcher from the Cardinals. Again, the Cardinals, but this guy probably deserved it. Uh, Ted Simmons. And he goes in, in. In 2020, this guy goes in, and he was done playing way back in the 60s, 70s. And, you know, he's got pretty much double Bill Freehand's numbers across the board. Pretty much double Freehand's numbers across the board, and this guy just got in. So, love Bill Freehand. Also was a, a Michigan Wolverine, if I'm not mistaken. You know, great player. We love him, but just not a Hall of Famer to me. That being said, uh, we're going to get into some other guys that, that I believe should be Hall of Famers, and I promise you I'm going to get to every name that you guys threw me that should have been considered as Hall of Famers, and we'll have those arguments as if they are or not. You can disagree with me or don't. But here's a few criteria I'm going to lay down for you 
during my discussion of uh, should be or shouldn't be Hall of Famers. Um, I only, I'm only, I only deal in real numbers, guys. I only deal in real numbers. Okay, don't come at me with whips and wars and WPAs and all this new age cybermetrics and stuff. I, I don't buy into it. Okay, I don't buy into that stuff because the numbers that I'm going to use are numbers that don't lie. Home runs, hits, RBIs, how many years you played, gold gloves, silver slugger, things that are, are concrete. You did them or you didn't. You know what I mean? These whips and wars and all this stuff, holds, all that kind of stuff. These are things that are ingrained into the culture of baseball now that were originated by agents. These, these numbers and, and these formulas for coming up with a guy's worth were introduced by agents. And you know why? Because you can manipulate a formula to spit out any number you want it to spit out. So anything that's a formula that gives you a, a he's got a 7.2 war, his wins above replacement. These are numbers and formulas created by agents to make their clients more valuable. And the more they went to owners and demanded more money based on these things, the more these things, these cybermetrics, had to become ingrained into the culture of baseball for these owners and front office people to justify the money they were spending. When in reality, it was just you had to outspend the other guy or they were going to sign the guy. If you didn't give them, you know, 5.2, some other team was going to. But really, he's only worth 3.8. So the agent's selling it to you based on these cybermetrics. You got to pay the guy or some other team's going to. So you overpay the guy, which is classic in baseball. And then what does the front office and the owners have to do? Well, they got to double down on the reason why they gave him the money, which makes all this cybermetrics part of our baseball DNA now. And it's a bummer. Quite frankly, it's a bummer because it, does, it doesn't hold water for me. Okay. I like real facts. I like real stats. You know, if you want to come at me and say, okay, my guy didn't hit the most home runs or the most RBIs, and he, he wasn't in the top 10 in batting average. But here's, I can tell you right now, like, for instance, let's say Placido Polanco on that 2006 Tigers team. He led the major leagues in knocking in runs with runners in scoring position in innings seven through nine. Now, that's not a cybermetric. That's a fact. If it was the seventh, eighth, or ninth inning, and there was runners in scoring position, and he came to the plate, he knocked them in. That means the guy's clutch. Now, there's a little side stat that may not show up in his average and homers and RBIs that I'll listen to and take into consideration. Don't come at me with his war. I, I'm like, I don't, okay, I've gone off on that tangent, but I think I make a pretty good point as to how these things got ingrained into baseball, and they don't hold a lot of water with me. So when I'm talking Hall of Famers, I'm talking real numbers, concrete career, what did you do? Not speculation of what a formula spits out your worth was. Okay, this is baseball. This is not diving or gymnastics where a group of judges give you a score based on a formula and then we decide who wins. That's not how it works. There's a winner and a loser in this thing, and it's based on concrete evidence. Now, the baseball writers that vote on these things are notorious for double talk and hypocrisy. You know, uh, for years, they didn't want to let any DHs in because that's a guy who didn't have to play the position every day. He only got the hit. Therefore, he's not worthy of being considered a Hall of Famer. They were the same way with uh, relief pitchers as far as saves. Uh, this was a thing that for years they were like, no, if you're only pitching one inning at a time, you didn't have to go through the everyday labor of playing all the time or being a starting pitcher and pitching a lot of innings, and it's not fair. These are guys that don't belong in the Hall of Fame either because they somehow didn't earn it because their position didn't require as many innings of play as some other position did. I mean, th these things they come up with to justify 
They're jumping all over the board and basically picking guys they like against guys that they don't like. And that's what it comes down to. It comes down to the hypocrisy of guys who were considered anti-media guys, who were painted anti-media guys, just because they're not as social as other guys that weren't liked by these writers because they didn't give these writers anything or dislike the media. A guy like Jack Morris, who was constantly wronged by the media, so decided, I'm not talking to any bums anymore. You're just here to spin a story, and I'm not interested in giving you anything. Now, a lot of the times... These were guys that were just ultra competitive. And a lot of times you're sticking a microphone in their face after they lost a game and they're pissed off about it and they don't care to talk about it. And I've got a laundry list of guys that were enemies to the writers because they weren't best buddies with them or were maybe short and shitty. The guy could have just been an asshole or a prick. Didn't mean he didn't accomplish what he accomplished on the field. Okay. Their inability to separate the two is one of their biggest problems, you know? And just a quick case in point uh, of media darlings and back to Yankees and things like that. A guy like Joe DiMaggio, deserved Hall of Famer, deserved Hall of Famer. But here's a little known fact you might not know. Uh, Joe DiMaggio did not have as many hits as a guy named Bill Buckner. Bill Buckner had almost 340-some more hits than Joe DiMaggio, and this is a guy that doesn't even sniff talk about a Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not even going to get into Buckner. Nobody nominated him, and I'm not going to dive into Buckner and if he's worthy or he's not worthy. That ball did go between his legs, and I'm sure that hurts him to this day. But the guy had 2,700 career hits, and he's not even talked about. So just to show you, guys they love, they'll give the love to. Guys they don't, they won't. And we can start right with the relief pitchers. I mean, other than a guy like Raleigh Fingers, who, you know, dabbled on both sides of starting pitching and being a relief pitcher, he's majorly known as a relief pitcher. Uh, he went into the Hall of Fame. That's about it, because these guys refused to evolve with the game. The game had changed. We are now specifying pitchers to be closers, to end games. And, and the first one who really gains a ton of notoriety for this, whether he should have been the first two or not is Dennis Eckersley. You know, Dennis Eckersley is a guy that got a lot of fame for being a closer. He did, you know, but here again with the baseball writers. So they decide, hey, Eck was great. He established some things at that position that were great, postseason runs and things like that. Let's put him in. So Eckersley retires in 98, and he only waits until 04, and they put him in. But then you got a guy like Lee Smith, who has way more saves than Eckersley ever did. He retired in 1997, and he's got to wait 23 years only to be put in by the Veterans Committee last year. Why? Not a media darling. Didn't really get along with a lot of those guys, and they made him pay for it, and he waited forever. And this guy had way more saves than Eckersley ever did. You know, hypocrites. And if they don't like it, you're not going to get it. They're so late to the party on this closer thing that... They make Trevor Hoffman wait forever to get into the Hall of Fame. And when I say forever, as far as Trevor Hoffman's concerned, it's because he didn't go in on the first ballot. This guy was the all-time saves leader when he left the game. It's 601. He's got about 140 more than the next guy. He ends with a 2.8 ERA. He's got a 90% conversion rate for saves. And this is a guy they won't put into the Hall of Fame for a couple of votes because, well... He's just a closer. He didn't have to play every day. That means you don't get to go in first ballot. What is all this if you go in on the first ballot, it's disrespectful to a guy like Lou Gehrig? Who, you know, why is that disrespectful to the old guys if you go in on a first ballot, if you deserve it? Like somehow they have this system where 
they make you wait a certain amount of proper votes before you get it so they can put you in line of where your greatness lies. Man, either the guy's in or he's not. Why is a guy like Trevor Hoffman not in on a first ballot? So they have that whole line of reasoning behind these relief pitchers and these closers. And then again, the hypocrisy. They turn the whole thing on its ear and they put Mariana Rivera in as the only first ballot unanimous decision ever in the history of the hall. And I, he deserved it. He deserved it, hands down. I believe he deserved it. But yet just a few years ago, we're hemming and hawing over the guy who was better than him until he retired. And now you make this guy the first unanimous. I mean, you got to make up your mind what you want to do here. You know, they're all over the board. And, and then they try to justify it. Like I said before, it's based on this and based on that. No, it's not based on anything. It's based on how you feel. And they were going through the same issues with the DH. I mean, forever. They wanted it. You're not putting a DH in the hall. This guy didn't have to do anything but hit. Okay, make that argument all you want. Doesn't change a guy's career. Doesn't change what a guy did. Uh, now, that's the way the game is played. It's the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's not your concept of what a baseball player is Hall of Fame. It's the Baseball Hall of Fame. And if baseball is going to establish a position called the designated hitter, and a guy who fills that position because that's what he's good at, puts up numbers that are good enough for the Hall of Fame, you don't get to then say, well, I don't think he belongs because he doesn't fit the criteria. The criteria of your Hall of Fame is being one of the greatest baseball players, okay? And the vote, as I've always stated, should be deemed based on position. You don't compare a third baseman to an outfielder. You don't take a, a, a first baseman and compare him to a, a, an outfielder. You do it position by position, okay? So they got no choice in 2014 but to put the big hurt Frank Thomas in because he's in one of the illustrious clubs. He's in the 500 home run club. So if you hit that 500 home run club, they, can, they cannot deny Frank Thomas. They can continue to deny other DHers. They can't, they can't deny him. Now, they'll eventually put a guy like Jim Rice in the Hall of Fame later than they should have. And we're going to revisit Jim Rice because we're going to compare his numbers to some other guys that are on this list that should be in the Hall of Fame who, quite frankly, have better numbers than Jim Rice. And they put Jim Rice in based on one of their theoretical categories of this guy may not have had the best overall career numbers, but he dominated a decade. That's a saying they use all the time. Dominated a decade. Yet dominated a decade won't apply to Jack Morris. And we'll get into that as well. But anyways, they'll put Jim Rice in later. Okay, now they're not going to be able to deny putting David Ortiz in. David Ortiz has got the numbers. He's going to go in. They're going to put him in. Now, David Ortiz is a media darling. He's going to go in. He's also part of one of the illustrious clubs, 500 home run club. He's going to go into the Hall of Fame. But I'm just pointing out some of the things that they do and say, and then they do them the other way. Now, I'm just pointing out some of their benchmarks or reasonings that they flip-flop back and forth on to justify a guy they like or don't. And I think this is a great spot to bring up a guy they just put in the year before, Edgar Martinez. Edgar Martinez is a guy who was a DH more than 70% of his career. That's a DH. He's a DH. They don't want to put DHs in, especially if you're not in one of the illustrious clubs, correct? Well, here's a guy who hits 312 in his career, has 2,247 hits, 309 home runs, and 1,261 RBIs. I mean, those are good numbers for a career. That's a really good career. It's a great career. Is that a hands-down Hall of Famer? 
especially for a guy who plays the position every day. I'm going to give you a list of guys later that played the position every day and had a longer career than Edgar Martinez ever did and have way better numbers than Edgar Martinez did. Yet Edgar Martinez is going to go into the hall and as the designated hitter, didn't even have to play the field. Do you see the hypocrisy here? And again, I'm not arguing that Martinez doesn't belong. I think he's really borderline, but they put him in. And they put him in over other guys who played every day. And that's one of the things they bring up all the time. Now, before we get further into these lists of, of guys that I feel should or shouldn't be in based on those that were nominated by listeners, I am going to bring up one criteria that I did throw out there was I'm not going to talk about the steroid guys. Um, that's a separate debate. And guys like Pete Rose, those are separate debates. Those are guys that have the numbers that deserve it. But as far as Pete Rose is concerned, this is a guy that broke a rule. He broke a rule that specifically states you cannot bet on baseball, especially not betting on your own team. If you bet on baseball, you're banned from baseball. Now, that's a rule. We don't go back and say, well, but this guy's really the hits leader. So, no, sorry. The guy was betting on his own team as the manager. And for everybody that wants to come back at me right now and say, but he never bet on his own team to lose. He only bet him to win. I mean, that's not, no, there's no, there's no gray area here. Number one, number two, he did bet on them to lose. He bet on them to win and lose. This has been stated by the guys that were placing the bets for him. Pete Rose came out and denied the whole thing. And then he thought admitting to it was going to get him the forgiveness he deserved to get into the Hall of Fame. So he then admitted to doing it all. And then when they still didn't let him in, he then retracted and said, I only did that because I thought it would get me in. I never did it. Uh, this guy's lied so many damn times. And I'm sorry, he broke a rule. Is he the all-time hits leader? Yes. Did he bet on baseball and bet on his own team so he's banned from baseball? Yes. Therefore, to me, you're going to have to wait, my man, and you can go in posthumously. I don't have a problem if they want to put him in posthumously, but you don't get that during your lifetime. You broke one of the big, big rules. That's a big one. You can't be the manager of the club and betting on him to win and lose games. I'm sorry. The integrity of the game is held up there. So guys like him, the steroid guys, I'm not going to discuss them. It's a separate discussion. And I will bring up one of them, though, just based on the last bunch of stat lines I gave you for Edgar Martinez and guys like Jim Rice and, and what their numbers were for the Hall of Fame. And a guy who popped up on that blip of the steroid thing for like two seconds and I think it was for the for the course of of one season he was rehabbing they said he was on some list of somebody that sent something they never even had Gary Sheffield on anything other than a list from somebody and this is not a guy who put up steroid numbers in any season he ever played in so when this guy got on tv and angrily denied all this uh, I, I tended to believe this guy and the proof is in the pudding. When a guy like Bonds tells you, no, I didn't do it. No, I didn't do it, regardless of the evidence. And then you look and he's hitting 72 home runs at the end of his career. Yeah, you did. I mean, it's pretty simple. You look through Sheffield's numbers. He never had any kind of influx like that. He never had a Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire style influx of his numbers. He just didn't. Okay. And here's a guy that, again, the media hated, the writers hated. And they weren't going to put him in. This is a guy who hit 292 for his career, has 2,689 career hits, 1,676 RBIs, and he's in the illustrious 500 home run club. He had 509 home runs, you know? And this is a guy, to their own argument, played every day. He played. This wasn't a DH. This guy was good in the field, too. He played. 
I mean, Sheffield's a guy that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Now, you can come back at me with the steroid thing. Whether I believe it or not doesn't matter because he was indicted on it. I mean, not he wasn't really indicted. I mean, in the court of public opinion, he's indicted on that, saying that his name was on something the one time. Okay, fine. But then you explain to me how on the ballots for the Hall of Fame voting the last bunch of years, other guys we know did it and got caught doing it red-handed are creeping up near that number of votes, that 75%-ish vote to get into the Hall of Fame. You explain to me how the voters are saying, well, Barry Bonds, well, Roger Clements, well, all these other guys that got nailed for doing it and numbers did jump in influx, yet you're going to look at a guy like Sheffield and say, well, no, that one little uh, time he was mentioned in steroids, he didn't. No, this is because he was known as being an asshole he didn't like you guys in the media, and you don't like him, and you're not going to give him the time of day. That's what that's about. Those other guys are creeping up the list. He deserves to be right there with them. He's in those illustrious clubs. You tell me how many guys have hit 500 home runs and had 2,700 hits. You don't need to because I'm going to tell you later. And that brings me to probably the biggest snub in Hall of Fame history due to his very rocky relationship with the media was Jack Morris. I mean, it's beyond ridiculous that Jack Morris had to wait until last year to go into the Hall of Fame. This is a guy, this is a guy that is arguably top five. It's not even arguable. He's top five all time in big game postseason pitching performances. I mean, you're not going to find a guy with a better resume than this. And I will always bring up 1991 World Series Game 7. You will never see this again in your lifetime. We will see somebody break that 72 home run mark or break the 56 game hitting streak before we will ever see somebody in a game seven World Series pitch a 10 inning complete game shutout and win the game one to nothing. Jack Morris pitched game seven against the Braves, against Smoltz and that staff, and he pitched all 10 innings and won the game one to nothing to win the World Series. Now, to me, that's the greatest postseason pitching performance ever. You can take Don Larson's perfect game. You can take the couple of no-hitters that have been thrown in the postseason. I'll take that one. Ten complete innings against a Braves team and lineup that was good, and he wins the game one nothing in a shutout. I mean, also won the World Series with the Tigers in 84, went on to win the World Series with Toronto in 92 when he – should have won the Cy Young. But anyway, this is a guy they kept out of the Hall of Fame for years because they just didn't like him. And boy, did he fit their criteria of a guy that dominated his decade. They talk about that with putting in guys like Jim Rice and other players. And if he dominated a decade, they talk about that, about putting Pedro Martinez and Roy Halladay into the Hall of Fame. Now, those are two guys I believe belong in the Hall of Fame. They absolutely do, because they did just that. But nobody dominated a decade of baseball like Jack Morris did, and that's just a fact. Nobody won more games in the 1980s than Jack Morris. He won more than any other pitcher in that decade. Okay? Won the World Series. He's a three-time World Series champion. He's got the postseason marks and big games to go onto his resume. And I think a good benchmark here is Pedro Martinez and Roy Holiday. These are two guys that also, like Jack Morris, did not hit the illustrious 300-win club. 300 wins will get you in the Hall of Fame like 500 home runs will, okay? Now, 
I do believe that number is going to drop to 250 with the way the game has changed, but that's coming down the road. Anyway, so let's just look at their lines. Pedro Martinez career, 219 wins, 2.93 ERA. He had over 3,000 strikeouts. Okay, now 46 complete games, 17 shutouts. All right, and he won the Cy Young three times. Okay, that's a guy who dominated his decade. That's a guy that belongs in the Hall of Fame. He dominated when he played with the Red Sox, especially in his prime. But those numbers, none of those numbers are automatic Hall of Fame numbers, but he went in relatively quickly based on that domination. The same with Roy Holiday. He's got the postseason no-hitter, okay? But Holiday for his career, 203 wins, 3.38 ERA, 2,117 career strikeouts, 67 complete games, 20 of those shutouts, and he's a two-time Cy Young winner, Okay. None of those are automatic numbers by any means, but he's a guy that goes in relatively quickly due to his domination when he was in his prime and during during a specific decade. Agree with it. But then you can't come at me and say Jack Morris don't belong. Jack Morris, 254 wins, way more than those other two guys, 3.9 ERA, 2,478 career strikeouts. Here's the big difference. 175 complete games. 175 complete games. 28 of those shutouts. Now, this is a guy they for years said, well, his numbers just don't, you're just not. No, save it, man. Save it. You're hypocrites. You didn't like the guy and you made him wait. And furthermore, the guy didn't even get a Cy Young because you didn't like him. I mean, in 1986, he goes 21 and eight. Now, granted, Clements won the Cy Young that year and deservedly. But my point is Jack Morris finishes fifth at 21 and eight. Okay, in 1983, he goes 20 and 13, and he leads the league in complete games, innings, strikeouts, batters faced, goes 20 and 13, and he comes in third in the voting, third. A relief pitcher named Dan Quisenberry finishes ahead of him with 45 saves. Okay, so I'm just saying, I, I mean, also in 1992, he goes 21 and 6. In 1992, he goes on a run of 21 wins and six losses, carries the Blue Jays into the playoffs and the Blue Jays to a World Series title. He comes in fifth in the voting that year. This is a guy you don't like, so you don't vote for him. There's no way around that. And finally, you, you put him in. You made him wait long enough and you put him in. And that goes for Trammell as well. All right, I'm not going to go off on a tangent on Trammell here because that was long deserved too. Again, you, you look at a guy's numbers, but you have to be by position. And when Tram played shortstop, you didn't have guys hitting 50 home runs at shortstop. That's not the way the game was played back then. You had guys like Ozzie Smith, who gets in the Hall of Fame strictly for his defensive abilities that barely hit 200. He's a Hall of Famer. You know what I mean? But a guy like Trammell's got to sit around and wait. I mean, his career 283 average. He's got 2,365 hits, four gold gloves, an MVP. Now, you might say those aren't the greatest numbers. Those aren't automatic numbers. No, they're not. But then you turn around, you make you make Tram wait 17 years to get into the Hall of Fame, and you turn around, you put Barry Larkin in the Hall of Fame relatively quickly, and, and Barry Larkin's got less hits than Alan Trammell. He's got about the exact same batting average, 295 to 285, okay? Their home runs the same, about 190, and they both had around 1,000 RBIs, Okay. Tram had four gold gloves, Larkin had three gold gloves, and he also has an MVP. And that guy goes in, bang. So you, you explain to me what your criteria is then. 
you know. And Alan Trammell also part of the greatest double team duo in the history of baseball. Nobody has turned more double plays than Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker together. They're the greatest double play tandem, defensive double play tandem in the history of baseball. And this guy's got to sit around and wait around forever to go into the Hall of Fame. You know, you explain it to me. And this brings me to the reason that I dove into this thing to begin with. The biggest travesty that there is to me personally, uh, Lou Whitaker. Lou Whitaker still not being put in the Hall of Fame. Now, everybody thought it was going to happen this year, and it didn't. And again, this is a guy that the media did not like. This is a guy, I grew up in Detroit, I know. This is a guy that baseball writers didn't like, and it all stemmed from his religious beliefs. Lou Whitaker was Jehovah's Witness. So there were certain things that he didn't do. One of those things was saluting the flag after the national anthem. Now keep in mind, a lot of these baseball writers were voting on these things at the time and writing about him at the time. These are guys who are World War II vets, and they didn't take kindly to that. They just didn't take kindly to that, and they didn't bother to try to understand it. Now I'm not knocking those guys, and I'm not knocking Lou. I'm just giving you facts. Now, here's the thing I don't like that those guys did to him in the press. As over the years, they slowly portrayed him as a guy who played lackadaisical, didn't really care much about the game, didn't put in extreme effort. He was a guy that was quiet, and that was all. He didn't draw a lot of attention to himself. That's what Sparky Anderson famously said about him. Sparky Anderson famously said about Lou Whitaker, he may have a little trouble getting into the hall because Lou was never one to bring attention upon himself so this was a guy who just kept to himself and they lambasted him and when i'm done giving you his numbers and his facts and all these comparisons to other second basemen in the hall of fame you're going to be disgusted when you find out that he was on the ballot one time and didn't even get the five percent to continue on to another ballot he finished on his first ballot with 2.9 percent of the vote right alongside a couple other guys Tom Hankey, Steve Bedrosian, Jose Rio. These are guys he did not deserve to be on the same level of votes with. And quite frankly, a lot of people couldn't understand it. Uh, when he retired in 95, uh, Sports Illustrated did a big story on Tram and Whitaker, and it was all about how the, the double play tandem, the duo, was going to go into the Hall of Fame together. And then they didn't. And Lou didn't even come close. Now, mind you, I do respect that this is a tougher Hall of Fame and a tougher club to get into. And I do respect the fact that this is a very hard Hall of Fame to get into. I do respect that fact. You know, there are only 264 players in the Baseball Hall of Fame, are in the Hall of Fame. Okay, but this year specifically, we're talking second baseman. There are only 21 second basemen in the Hall of Fame. Now, of those 21 Hall of Famers, a guy that they hold in high esteem, as one of the greatest second basemen ever, still calls games to this day, is Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan is considered one of the benchmarks for a Hall of Famer at his position, second base. And if you look at Joe Morgan's numbers right next to Lou Whitaker's, it's embarrassing that this guy hasn't even gotten a sniff for the Hall of Fame. Yet on the other side, one guy's the benchmark for it. Okay, let's just take a look. Career batting average, Lou Whitaker, 276. Joe Morgan, 271. Hits. Lou Whitaker, 2,369. Joe Morgan, 2,517. Pretty close. RBIs. Lou Whitaker, 1,084. RBIs for Morgan, 1,133. Pretty close. 
Career home runs. Whitaker, 244. Morgan, 268. Pretty close. I mean, those numbers are pretty close. So let's look at some of the other stuff they did on their resume. Uh, both World Series champions. They both did that. Uh, Lou Whitaker's the Rookie of the Year in 1978 on his resume. Uh, he's got three gold gloves. Okay, Joe Morgan has five gold gloves. But Lou Whitaker won the Silver Slugger Award for second baseman four times. Joe Morgan only won it once. Now, Joe Morgan did win MVP. Okay, but let's look at Whitaker finished second in the MVP. And let's take a look at those two seasons. So let's look at their MVP seasons. Okay, in 1975, Joe Morgan wins the MVP by hitting 327 with 163 hits, 94 RBIs, and 17 home runs. Okay, in 1983, Whitaker finishes second in the MVP voting. Again, not very much liked by everybody. He hits 320 with 206 hits, 72 RBIs, 17 home runs. Very similar seasons. Very similar seasons for the two of them. So when you, when you want to talk MVPs between these two, again, very similar. Now, Morgan did win another one in 76 with, again, similar numbers. And Whitaker did lose the 83 MVP to Ripken, who hit 318 with 211 hits, 102 RBIs, and 27 home runs. Ripken deserved the MVP that year, no doubt about it. I'm just comparing the two seasons that the two had. And all I'm saying here is these two players are extremely similar along their number line. Now, you can sit here and say you think I'm making the argument that Whitaker's a better second baseman than Morgan. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Hall of Fame. And on one hand, you have a guy that is the pinnacle and the benchmark and no doubter Hall of Famer. And on the other side, you're telling me a guy that has just about the same career can't even sniff the Hall of Fame? You have a problem. You have a problem. This isn't like Whitaker came close a bunch of times and didn't get in. That maybe somebody can swallow. But he hasn't even sniffed it. He's not even close, and he holds the same numbers as your benchmark holder, your, you know, the guy that is a no-brainer Hall of Famer. And much like we stated before, if you want to take defense into account, as you do with Ozzie Smith and so many other players, it's kind of funny. With Ozzie Smith, it's like, well, they put him in clearly for defense, just clearly as defensive. He's one of the greatest defensive shortstops ever, and he was, but also was a media darling was a highlight darling, was a St. Louis Cardinal. The guy doing backflips on the field and stuff. The guy just was really well-loved and liked. And he deserved to be in the Hall of Fame defensively. I don't have a problem with being in defensively. But again, you can't say one guy's defense puts him in and then look at another guy who holds a record with the other Hall of Famer, Alan Trammell, as the all-time leaders and turning double plays together. And then you don't account his defense at all. And his numbers at the plate match and surpass some of your already Hall of Fame second baseman. You just can't do that. There's a travesty this guy's not in the Hall of Fame. And just to placate all of you um, cybermetric heads out there, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the Jaws score. This is widely considered the gold standard for Hall of Fame worthiness now. Okay, this has gained a lot of credibility, and you can find it on any website. You can find a player's Jaws score, which very specifically compares his numbers and his career to his counterparts or would-be counterparts in the Hall of Fame at his position. Of the 21 second basemen in the Hall of Fame, the average Jaws score is a 57. Whitaker's Jaws score, 56.3 places him 11th among the 21 second baseman already in the Hall of Fame. And you're telling me this guy's a throwaway? 
2.9% on the first ballot, and he can't even get back anywhere to consideration of getting into the Hall of Fame. Come on, man. He ought to be in the Hall of Fame. And happy birthday, sweet Lou. You belong there, and I hope they keep fighting to get you there because it ain't right. And there's one other second baseman that I will use to end this whole podcast about the Hall of Fame because it'll blow the doors off of the Hall of Fame voters and expose them for who they are. And we'll get to that guy later. But it's ridiculous that this guy's not in the Hall of Fame and is still sitting around waiting. But anyway, right now we're going to get to the list. We're going to get to the list of guys that you all suggested to take a look at and they disagree with me or don't on if your guy belongs in the Hall of Fame. And the first guy that was nominated was Don Mattingly. And you take a look at Don Mattingly really quickly here. Mattingly, in 14 years, played 14 years, he had 307, 222 home runs, 1,099 RBIs, and had 2,153 hits. Okay? The guy won nine gold gloves. Again, we're comparing first baseman to first baseman. Okay? This is not an outfielder that's hitting 40 home runs. Okay? At this time, when he played, again, in context, not through the lens of today's game, through the context of when he played, you didn't just throw the big, strong DH and stick him over at first base who couldn't play defense because he hit 40 home runs. It didn't do that back then. Okay? When Mattingly played, you had to be able to play first base, and he won nine gold gloves doing it. He's six-time All-Star, won the MVP. Two times he was the hit leader in the American League. One time he led the league in RBIs, and he had one batting title. That's a pretty decent line. I mean, the only argument I'm going to make here is the Yankees are media darlings, and if they didn't put this guy in as much as they love to put a Yankee in the Hall of Fame, I mean, it has to do with his numbers. You know, they're borderline. They're borderline. You know, for me, this is a guy that I would say is probably not a Hall of Famer. You know, he falls on the side of the fence to me that later on in life, maybe a veterans committee wanted to put him in or something when he's like 75, 80 years old. I'd be fine with it. But just looking at these numbers for me, I'm going to say Mattingly's a no. You may disagree with me in that, or maybe you don't. Uh, The next guy that was nominated is kind of a tough one. It's kind of a tough one. It's Dale Murphy. You all remember Dale Murphy with the Braves. Okay, he played 18 years. Now, his lifetime average is 265, but again, that dwindled toward the end. He played a couple seasons he shouldn't have after the injuries. But he's got 398 home runs, 1,266 RBIs, 2,111 hits. He was a five-time gold glover, seven-time all-star. He won the MVP twice. He won the MVP back-to-back in 82 and 83. Okay, he's 60th all-time on the home run list. And this one, again, is tough for me. He got injured. He kind of fell off. His numbers are really close. I mean, getting to that 400 mark in home runs, he's got 2,000 hits. He's close as far as numbers concerned. He would be on the outside for me. But I have to apply the logic that these guys apply to some of these other pitchers and to a guy like Edgar Martinez in his career as a DH. And look at his numbers compared to Murphy's, a guy who played every day. And if you want to throw in their factor of a guy who dominated a decade, a guy who was a feared hitter when he was in his prime in, in, you know, in the 80s, Dale Murphy fits that category. So if you're going to stick other guys in for that reason, this is a guy that deserves to go in as well, I'd say. Now, based just on his numbers, I'd say, you know, I'm half and half on this guy. If he got in, I'd be fine with it. If he didn't, I could understand your argument if you didn't apply that logic to other players. You apply the same logic to this guy, his numbers compared to Jim Rice, his numbers compared to Edgar Martinez, and how he dominated his decade, two MVPs. This guy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. 
Another guy that somebody nominated that I kind of had the feeling right away, this is going to be a no, and I, and I do land on a no on this guy, is Albert Bell. I do land on a no on this guy, but I'm going to throw you a nod here, and I am going to play the media card again here. This is a guy who was not liked by the media because he was not uh, Joey Talk Talk after games. He was not a guy that you wanted to approach after they lost. You knew if you did approach him after you lost, they lost or he had a bad game, he was going to give you some sound bites that were going to be extremely negative, and, hey, that's just good press, right? This guy was known for being kind of an asshole, okay? He just was, but that doesn't change the fact that your bias toward him cost him an award. Now, injuries hurt him later in his career. This is a guy that only played 12 years. He ended his career with, with a two ninety five batting average. He hits 381 home runs, and that's close to Murphy's mark. 1,239 RBIs, again, close to Murphy's mark. And he comes in shy on the hits, though, at 1,726 hits. You know, Murph was in the 2,000-hit club. Albert Bell only has 1,726 hits. But here's what I'm going to give you, because my man from the Detroit Fire Department, Corey Fullalove, wanted to nominate this guy. And I respect Corey. He's a real big sports head. I'll give you this, Corey. In 1995, Albert Don't Call Me Joey Bell is robbed of the MVP because of his relationship with the media and because Mo Vaughn and the Red Sox are media darlings. And let's just take a look at it. 1995, Mo Vaughn versus Joey Bell. Mo Vaughn plays 140 games. Joey Bell plays 143, okay? Mo Vaughn has 550 at-bats. Joey Bell has 546. All very comparable, all pretty much the same. I just tell you that so we look at their batting numbers and nothing's skewed here. These are the same numbers, okay? Mo Vaughn scores 98 runs. Joy Bell leads the league in runs scored with 121. How many hits did they have that year? Mo Vaughn has 165 hits. Joy Bell, 173. Again, better. Home runs. Mo Vaughn hits 39 home runs that year. That's a lot. Albert Bell hits 50. Albert Bell hits 50 home runs and becomes the first player in MLB history to have 50 home runs and 50 doubles in one season. Let's look at RBIs. Vaughn and Bell tie. They're both the league leader in RBIs with the exact same 126 RBIs. Batting average, Mo Vaughn hits 300. Joey Bell hits 317. Not supposed to call him Joey. I know it, but it's tough. Albert Bell hits 317, okay? Mo Vaughn strikes out 150 times. Okay, Albert Bell's not even in the top 10 in strikeouts that year. This is a no-brainer. Albert Bell had a way better season. Now, you may also want to take into account that in the new age of baseball here, they are taking into consideration, even though they say they don't, how your team finished during the season, your postseason run, your playoff run. You think maybe Mo Vaughn just had a better postseason and playoffs and edged him out on the award. Wrong again. Now, the Red Sox did win their division, and they won the division by seven games over the Yankees. That same season, Albert Bell and the Indians won their division as well by 30 games over the second-place Royals. So Cleveland wins their division by 30 games. So Albert Bell bests him in that category as well. In the postseason, Cleveland beats Boston, and they sweep them. In that series, head-to-head, where Cleveland sweeps Boston, Albert Bell hits 273 with one home run, and three RBIs. Mo Vaughn, historically, if you remember, historically goes 0 for 14 in the series. Not one hit. A zero batting average takes one walk. He's got zeros across the board. This guy's your MVP that year. 
I mean, the Indians go on to lose the World Series in seven games that year. You know, Albert Bell goes on to hit another home run in the ALCS. He hits two more home runs in the World Series. I mean, this guy performed in the postseason as well. So that's for you, Corey. You're right. The media didn't like Albert Bell. He should have been the MVP in 95. And I can't even, how do you explain any of this to me that he came in second? And it wasn't even that close a vote, I don't think. Even if it was, doesn't matter. He's robbed of the MVP that season because of the media. Next nomination on the list was Kenny Lofton. Uh, Kenny Lofton, he's kind of a tough case here because, again, this is a guy that was pretty good defensively, had a really long career. Kenny Lofton came in second in Rookie of the Year voting. Kenny Lofton also led the league in stolen bases for five consecutive years. Now, that may not mean anything to a lot of you younger listeners right now, but stolen bases used to be a real thing. Now that the game is nothing but strikeouts and home runs, you don't risk trying to steal second base because either the guy at the plate is going to put it into the stands and you're going to score or he's going to strike out and you're not. So they don't risk trying to steal bases. But back when the game was played where you actually had to be able to like get base hits and drive the ball the other way and play it like that, it was important to try to get the second base. And guys stole bases. Guys like Ricky Henderson and Vince Coleman would steal more than 100 bases in a season. Okay, so it was a pretty big deal. Kenny Lofton led the league in stolen bases five years in a row, and he's 15th all-time in stolen bases. That being said, he ended his career with 2,482 hits. Uh, I believe if he would have got to 2,500, they'd probably put him in the Hall of Fame. For some reason, they're going to hold those 18 hits against him. But 2,482 hits, that's not shabby. 781 RBIs, 130 home runs. You know, not a home run hitter, again. Career batting average of 299. His career batting average is 300. I mean, this is a guy I would not have a problem at all if the Veterans Committee wanted to put in right now. He's past his ballot life, I think. This is a guy I wouldn't have a problem with at all. You hit 300 in your career. You got 2,500 hits. You're 15th all-time in stolen bases. You led the league five times in a row. Six-time All-Star. Four gold gloves. Uh, you know, runner-up rookie of the year. This is a guy I'm fine with. You know what I mean? Uh, first ballot Hall of Famer? No. But should he have probably been voted in before he was off the ballot? I'd say so. You go ahead and pull up the internet and tell me how many guys have 2,500 hits in their career. It's a pretty short list compared to the guys that have ever played baseball at the professional level. I mean, that's it's a pretty big deal. And the stolen bases are a big, big deal. And again, seen through the lens of the way the game is played today, it's not a big deal because they don't do it anymore. But that was a big deal back then to be able to steal bases because guys hit. The next guy on the list, this one didn't come in on the internet, came via text from one of my, my best buddies, uh, Mike Fembert, back in Detroit. What's up, Mike? If you're listening to the show, I'm going to give you your due credit here. This is not a guy that I even thought of. This is not a guy that anybody else even nominated or thought of. And this is not a guy that comes from your hometown of Detroit. He's not even an East Coast guy. But he wanted to nominate Steve Garvey. And when I got into digging on Steve Garvey, I thought, Man, this is a guy who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. You know, he played 19 seasons, 19 seasons, and he's got a 294 career batting average. I mean, that's rated 300. This guy pretty much hit 300 for his career. 272 home runs, 1,308 RBIs. He's in the 2,500 hit club, 2,599 hits, so 2,600 hits. He's the MVP of the National League in 74. He's got four gold gloves. He's an all-star 10 times. Twice he's the MVP of the All-Star Game. He's the NLCS MVP twice. I mean, he's 83rd all-time in hits. He's 83rd all-time in hits. Now, this is a guy I've never even heard people 
argue about should be or shouldn't be in. And I'm looking at him on paper here, and I'm going, this is a guy that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. These are Hall of Fame numbers. These are Hall of Fame numbers. Steve Garvey would get a yes from me. I mean, they could put him in a veterans committee next year, and I would have to say about time. So tip of the cap, kudos, prize of the week on the nomination from Mike Fembert. That was not a very common nomination or name that you would get during this discussion. And that was a good good nomination. I say yes on Garvey. The next guy that was nominated uh, is Omar Vizcal. Now, Omar Vizcal is going to be in the Hall of Fame. He's on the ballot right now. He's going to be not. He's going to get in. Okay, so we don't even have to have a long argument here. This guy played 24 years, finished with a batting average of 272. Now, he only had 80 home runs, but this is not a home run hitter. This is not an RBI guy, 951 RBIs. That's not his thing. But 2,877 hits. I mean, he's really close to the 3,000-hit club. And for this dude, it's defense all day. If you're going to put a guy like Ozzie Smith in for defense, whose batting average I believe was like 218 for his career, uh, this is a guy that's almost got 3,000 hits, hit 272. He's got 11 gold gloves, 11 gold gloves. He's seventh all time and outs made with 8,400. I mean, he's put people out 8,400 times and he's fifth all time in assists with 8,000 assists. I mean, those are some pretty, pretty crazy defensive numbers. This guy's going into the hall of fame. He's the seven time fielding champ, seven times in his career. He led the league in fielding percentage. Okay, which brings me to the next point. He is number one all-time in fielding percentage. Number one all-time in fielding percentage at 98%. This guy converted 98% when it comes to fielding. That's ridiculous, man. Over 24 seasons, that's about as close to perfect as you can get. And just to put it in perspective, again, Ozzie Smith has put in the hall strictly for his defense. Ozzie Smith comes in 24th on the all-time fielding percentage list. Okay, now granted, guy like Ozzy and his range and athleticism probably got to a lot more balls than most guys did and just couldn't convert it for an out or by getting there, you know, couldn't handle the ball and made an error. You touched it, it's an error. I, I get all that. You can put all that into the equation if you want to. But I'm just telling you, Ozzy Smith comes in 24th. This guy's number one. This guy's number one. So, I mean, Omar's going into the Hall of Fame. We don't need to beat that to death. He's a guy that's going to go in and it'll be well-deserved. The next guy that we're going to hit real quickly uh, is Dwight Evans. The next guy on the list is Dwight Evans, uh, nominated to me by a, a known Red Sox lackey, all right? My cousin Devin, who's the biggest sports head that I know. This guy can pull up facts from any sport that you want to think of. Uh, honestly, there's nobody that I, I like more to sit around and talk sports with than Devin. He, he knows so much about every single sport from hockey to basketball to football to baseball players the numbers decades years player he's phenomenal at it and he just wanted to nominate his favorite player of all time Dwight Evans now let's take a look at Dwight Evans and for me for me I don't think that it's Hall of Fame numbers but I'll throw them out to you and you're gonna have to tell me why not based on a comparison to Jim Rice based on a comparison to Edgar Martinez, these other guys they wanted to put in because Dwight Evans has better numbers across the board than Jim Rice does. He just does. He played 20 years. He hit 272 over that career, 385 home runs, more than Jim Rice, 2,446 hits, more than Jim Rice, 1,384 RBIs. I mean, he's right there with the same numbers that Jim Rice has, and they put Jim Rice in. So you got to tell me why not you got to tell me why wouldn't Dwight Evans be in, and here's icing on the cake for me. 
according to their own logic. Jim Rice is a DH. Jim Rice is a DH. Dwight Evans played every day. He's got better numbers, and he played every day. One guy goes in, the other guy doesn't. And you want to tell me that's not media bias? Who 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 somebody liked more or was feeling the pressure more to put in the Hall of Fame? I mean, come on. So for me, I think Dwight Evans is a bubble guy. Based on other guys they're putting in the Hall of Fame, he's a yes. He's a yes. So there you go, Devin. You know, disagree with me or don't on that one. Now, the last two guys that I'm going to discuss before I get to my all-time blow-the-lid-off guy, the last two guys that I'm going to discuss, number one is Dave Parker. Dave Parker, it's ridiculous that Dave Parker's not in the Hall of Fame, okay, especially based on everything that we have just said about everybody else. Dave Parker played 19 years. He finishes his career hitting 290. He's basically a 300 hitter, 339 home runs, 1,493 RBIs, 2,712 hits. He's got 2,700 hits, nearly 1,500 RBIs, 339 in homers, a hit 300 for his career. So he's going to need a couple things to put him over the edge. And here they are. I mean, he won the MVP. He's got an MVP. He's a seven-time All-Star. Guy played every day, three gold gloves. He's got two batting titles. He's the MVP of the All-Star game as well one time. And he's 17th all-time in hits. He's 17th all-time in hits. How, how the hell is Dave Parker not in the Hall of Fame but some of these other guys that I named to you are. I mean, you got to explain it to me. This this guy is a sure yes. Dave Parker should be in the Hall of Fame. It's ridiculous that he's not. They ought to be embarrassed. And the last guy on the list that was nominated by everybody, everybody nominated this guy. I got this name more than any other name for the nominations for the show. And it's the crime dog. It's the crime dog, Fred McGriff. This, again, is ridiculous. Now, this one I don't even get because this isn't a guy that was not liked by the media. He wasn't a media darling, but he wasn't disliked. Just a quiet guy. But this is a guy I don't understand why nobody voted for him and they won't put him in. I don't understand it. 19 years in the league. Lifetime batting average, 284. Okay? He's got 1,550 RBIs. He's got 2,490 hits. He's right at that 2,500 hit club. And again, remember I told you we're going to circle back to how many guys have had 2,500 hits and 500 home runs because Fred McGriff has 493 home runs. If this guy just hits seven more home runs, he's automatic, automatic Hall of Fame. 500 is automatic. He's seven home runs short, okay? Seven home runs short. And let me tell you this. He played during the the strike-shortened season of 94, okay? That season was shortened, ended. They stopped the season due to the strike. And that season was cut short by about 50 games. Okay, so just about missed 50 games that year because of that strike. When they stopped playing, Fred McGriff was on a tear. He had 34 home runs already that season, was on a tear, was having his best season of his career so far as home runs. I mean, the best he ever had, I think, was 36, and he already had 34 with 50 games to go. So this guy's in his prime, on a tear, and he's going to miss 50 games due to the strike. Do you think he would have hit seven more home runs that year and got the 500? I do. But here's why I bring that point up. Here's why I bring that point up. These writers, as we discussed earlier, want to bump guys up this list slowly but surely and make them pay their due over the steroids thing. Okay, right? So we're going to make them pay their due for doing a bunch of steroids and hitting 72 home runs and 66 home runs a season. We're just going to make them pay their due for that cheating to hit extra home runs and let them in the hall eventually anyway. But we're going to punish a guy like Fred McGriff for missing 50 games 
because of a strike that's out of his hands, nothing he did, and we're going to shortchange him and say, well, you finished seven home runs short. That's what we're going to do to him. Does that seem any kind of logical or does that seem like a bunch of hypocrisy? I mean, it's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We'll put the cheaters in, but just make them wait their time. But this guy doesn't get to get in at all because he finished seven home runs short when other guys had to leave for war. It's a bigger deal. I'm not comparing apples to oranges. I'm just saying things that were outside of their control had to leave. So if their numbers were a little short, they get the benefit of the doubt. They went and fought in the war, which I fully agree with. But I'm just saying this is out of Fred's hands. He clearly would have been in the 500 club had this not happened. And we're going to punish him for that. But reward the other guys for the cheating. Just make them wait. Doesn't make sense to me at all. So back to the other point quickly. Do you know how many players in the history of baseball have hit 500 home runs, had more than 2,500 hits, and more than 1,500 RBIs in their career? In the history of baseball, how many people did basically what Fred McGriff did? 17 players in the history of the game have ever done that. 17. Those 17 players? Barry Bonds, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, Alex Rodriguez, Willie Mays, Albert Pujols, Ken Griffey Jr., Frank Robinson, Rafael Palmero, Reggie Jackson, Manny Ramirez, Jimmy Fox, Ted Williams, Ernie Banks, Mel Ott, Gary Sheffield, Eddie Murray. Those are the 17 guys that are in that club with him. And you want to tell me this guy's not a Hall of Famer? This guy's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And this is a guy who's fallen off the ballot, never even came close in any of the votes, and is going to have to sit around and wait for a veterans committee? This is embarrassing. This guy's a black eye on baseball. Because he's not even a guy they can say, well, they didn't like him and he was an asshole. This is a black eye on baseball. Fred McGriff belongs in the Hall of Fame a long time ago. You got to be embarrassed about this one. And that's going to bring me to my last guy that absolutely is a surefire Hall of Famer. You look at the position he played, you look at when he played the position, and hell, you can look at him overall at this position if you want to. And that's Jeff Kent. The media hates Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent was a dick. Jeff Kent was an asshole. His teammates didn't like him. The media didn't like him. A lot of people didn't like the guy. And I'm sure if he could go back and change that, he would. Anyway, not the point. As far as second baseman go, he's a lifetime 290 hitter. 377 home runs, number one all-time for second baseman, 1,518 RBIs, second only to Rogers Hornsby for second baseman, also in the 1,500 club, 2,461 hits. You want to tell me this guy is not a Hall of Famer, let alone a first ballot Hall of Famer at your positions, and he's number one and number two and two of the most important statistical categories, Won the MVP award, five-time Silver Slugger. This guy's not even considered. Not even considered in the Hall of Fame with those numbers. So, I mean, there you have it. I mean, we can go on and on all day. I could dig deeper. I could find even more guys that blow up all these little criteria and categories that the gatekeepers hold. And the bottom line is, if they don't like you and you're not kissing a lot of ass, you better not be on the bubble or you ain't even going to be close. And some of these guys, not even on the bubble and they can't even get in. So baseball writers, get your shit together, man. Get your shit together. Put your biases aside. Just do what's supposed to be done. You know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see ballots moving forward where they had the baseball writers vote, and then they had a panel of an equal number of votes, 
that were given to Hall of Famers. And of those Hall of Famers, they would pick them by position as to what names are on the ballot and let them vote amongst themselves. And let's compare them numbers and see what they look like. Because something's got to be done with this system. You got a lot of guys who never even played making these votes, deciding which guys are getting into the Hall of Fame. And guys who are in the Hall of Fame and have played the game get no say at all as to who should be in the Hall of Fame. And then we're supposed to listen to these guys as to who was feared most and who, I mean, whatever they want to make up to justify what they want to do. The bottom line is there's a lot of guys that should be in the Hall of Fame that aren't going to be in the Hall of Fame because of these guys. So disagree with me or don't if you want on that. Get at me, tweet me, let me know what you think. But anyway, that's this week's episode. Been wanting to do that one for a while. Um, Looking forward to some of your guys' feedback on that. Working up another deep dive on paying college athletes. Going to try to get that out in the next couple of weeks here. That's it for now. We're hurting. We'd love to see baseball come back. Missing that the season hasn't started. But I'm going to wrap this thing up right now. We've been going long enough. So you know what, everybody? I'm going to see you next time on DWMOD. Hit us up on the Twitter. Give us a blast. That's at DWMOD pod. And as always, thanks for listening, guys.